From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uguez, and this is The Explainer. A no-deal Brexit could affect every aspect of British life. Welcome to Season 2 of The Explainer, the legal affairs show where we sit down with experts and dig behind the headlines. On today's show, we are catching up on Brexit. As the United Kingdom staggers towards the March 29th exit from the European Union, Prime Minister Theresa May's support has continued to erode. She postponed a vote in December when she did not have the support to move forward. With us is Miami Law Professor Caroline Bradley, who writes widely on matters of British and European financial law. She began her career at the London School of Economics. Let's go to Caroline and The Explainer's executive producer, Catherine Skip. Good morning, Caroline. Welcome back to The Explainer. Uh, we're delighted to have you in for our first, uh, it, our first episode of the season. So Brexit. Um, simply, the leaders of the other 27 EU countries have signed off on the withdrawal agreement, but Parliament has been left to accept it. Can you catch us up on what happened during December? Sure. Um, Perhaps I could say a couple of words about the withdrawal agreement to start off with, because this is a source of a lot of the tension that's happening in the parliament in the UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, the transition period uh, is established in the withdrawal agreement until December of 2020. During this period, both sides are supposed to use their best endeavours to have a future trade agreement concluded six months before the end of that period. Mm -hmm. Um, If the transition, um, if the future trade agreement is not concluded, then the EU and the UK have the ability to jointly extend the transition period for an unspecified period. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem that has existed right from the beginning is this idea of the situation of Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, uh, but as part of the Good Friday Agreement, there is an idea that there shouldn't be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Mm. And so within the context of the negotiations, it was problematic to figure out how not to have a hard border within the Irish island. Um, And the Democratic Unionist Party, on which the UK government currently depends uh, to succeed, to maintain its position as, as government, uh, is really keen on the idea that there should be no border within the North Sea. So mm-hmm. this is the irreconcilable problem that the UK has to deal Was with. Was this not foreseen when they were voting on Brexit, that this was going to be that sticking point? I don't think that in the context of the referendum vote, anybody ever mentioned the issue of Northern Ireland as an issue. In fact, we know that UK government politicians who are chosen to be secretaries of state for Northern Ireland sometimes don't realise the complexities of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, In in Great Britain on the mainland, uh, there isn't perhaps as much of a knowledge about the situation in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. as perhaps there ought to be. Mm -hmm. And obviously the issues in Northern Ireland and in the Republic are mm-hmm. very much more visible and, and felt. So there's a lot, uh, there are a number of other provisions in the withdrawal agreement, but it is this idea of the Irish backstop, which is the idea that um, there will be a temporary UK-EU customs union to avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland, in Ireland between the North and the Republic after Brexit. Um, that is causing a lot of distress at the moment. Many UK politicians, members of parliament are opposed to this idea. Mm -hmm. They 
they're opposed to it, particularly because they see it as potentially having no end. So there wouldn't be a proper Brexit if uh, Northern Ireland and the UK remained in the customs union indefinitely. Makes it a little squishy. It makes it, yes. It's not, it doesn't feel like true Brexit. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the major, major problems. In particular, because Parliament needs to approve the withdrawal agreement in order for it to be able to take effect. Uh, the EU seems as though it's on track to approve the withdrawal agreement, but the UK also needs to do it and it needs to be Parliament that carries out the approval. Mm -hmm. In December, Parliament was scheduled to vote on this, but Theresa May withdrew the vote uh, and put it back to next week, January the 15th, uh, because of the idea that there was insufficient support in Parliament. This week, everything's got very much more exciting. There have been two votes the last couple of days in which a majority of members of parliament have opposed the government. They have uh, denied the government the ability to raise taxes in the event of a hard Brexit. A future parliament would be able to change that. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it's a signal that there is a serious amount of concern about the idea of a hard Brexit. And uh, yesterday, uh, the House of Commons voted 308 to 297 to give the Prime Minister just three sitting days of Parliament to present a Plan B if the vote on the 15th of January is negative. Before the vote yesterday, uh, the government was going to have a three-week period, but obviously enough members of Parliament are unhappy about the idea of leaving it that long mm -hmm. that they voted to give her three days. Um, in fact, what this means is that the new, the plan B has to be presented on January the 21st. Uh, Theresa May, the prime minister today said that in this uh, presentation of a plan B, she will allow 90 minutes of debate and only one amendment to her proposed plan B. The one amendment is complicated because there are a number of different uh, ideas that are floating around. The first is, or one of the ideas is a second referendum, sometimes described as a people's vote. There's an idea of a permanent customs union. There's an idea of Norway plus, you know, different sorts of arrangements between the EU and the UK. Um, so this is very complicated. The Prime Minister had expected the amendment not to be voted on for procedural reasons, but the Speaker allowed it to proceed and people have been up in arms about whether he is behaving the way Speakers of the House of Commons are supposed to behave or uh, whether he is behaving in a way that is entirely consistent with the idea of taking back control for the people. Uh, the idea that Parliament should decide UK rules mm -hmm. was a large part of the Leave uh Proposal. And so the idea that Parliament is taking back control seems entirely consistent with that. Um, Theresa May has said this week that MPs would get a final say on whether a backstop solution for the Irish border would ever be put in place. But commentators in the EU have pointed out that the treaty doesn't provide for this. Uh, and so there's a conflict between international law as reflected in the treaty and this idea that MPs should be able to decide. It's not really workable as a matter of international law. So this is all very dramatic. And it reflects some things that have been going on in the UK for a period of time. On the one hand, uh, you know, Brexit is the most significant thing that will have happened to the UK in most citizens' lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a really significant political and economic 
uh, development uh, has real implications for the role of the UK in the world that are very different probably from the way that most of the uh, Brexiteers uh, see the idea of UK sovereignty. Um, the politics is incredibly divided within both main political parties, mm -hmm. Conservatives and Labour. Uh, different members of parliament have different views about what they see as the appropriate solution. Theresa May doesn't have a majority in parliament. Her ability to get legislation through depends on the support of the Democratic Unionist Party, um, a party which doesn't reflect the majority of views in Northern Ireland with respect to the Brexit question. So it's all very complicated. Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, said yesterday that the Article 50 process might have to be extended if the deadlock in Parliament could not be broken. So there's a possibility that the UK may go to the EU and say, we'd like to extend the Article 50 uh, timeframe. Mm -hmm. In so order push back the March Right. Deadline. So that I think is complicated from the perspective of the EU. They're not going to agree to pushing back the time frame indefinitely in order to have the UK dither about the way it has been for the last two years. Um, on the other hand, if there was a realistic pro prospect that agreement could be reached on some new proposal or an agreement that could be reached on approval of the withdrawal agreement, that would be different. Mm -hmm. Um, there is an idea that there um, could be a new referendum uh, allowing a delay in order for a referendum to be held. That mm -hmm. might be a possibility. By referendum, do you mean another vote? Yes, Brexit a second No vote. Brexits? So it could wipe the whole slate clean and back to where you were before, two years ago. Um, that's possible. So the European Court of Justice held in December that the Article 50 notification could be withdrawn. So mm -hmm. that is a possibility. It's a possibility that the government could withdraw. There is no sign that they intend to do this, mm -hmm. but that it would be technically possible to withdraw the Article 50 notification and then perhaps have another referendum. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn says he wants a new election. He doesn't, he's not so keen on a referendum right now, but mm -hmm. he wants a new election to get support for Labour. That's going to be very complicated. Uh, within the country, there are dramatically different views on how the country should move forward, and it's not at all clear what's going to happen. Do you think the vote was was not very close, but it was somewhat close originally? Do you think those percentages have changed markedly in the two years? One of the things a lot of people have noticed is that the tendency was for older people to support Brexit and for younger people to um, be inclined to remain. People who are very young don't remember a time when the UK wasn't part of the EU. Right. And so I've been reading stories that say, you know, every short period of time, a Brexiter dies and a young person <laughs> becomes of age to vote. Right. Clearly, you know, the demographics are pointing in the direction of the UK, people in the UK feeling European, younger people feel mm. more European. They take for granted that the UK is part of the EU. Right. Interesting. Oh, I thought things were crazy here. Um, so you've sort of hit on a lot of my questions was, can can Theresa May unblock the Brexit deal? What happens if the uh, the exit comes and there's no deal? I feel like we've covered a lot of those in what we've already talked about. Is there something uh, maybe we should talk about the impact on the U.S.? 
Well, let's talk about the no deal scenario, because I think we haven't really talked about the no deal scenario. Um, I think um, it's worthwhile noticing that both the UK and the EU say they have been preparing for a no deal Brexit. So in December last year, the Commission published some a contingency action plan with a number of measures in areas they said where a no deal scenario would create major disruption for citizens and businesses in the EU 27. One of the major issues that's addressed in the withdrawal agreement that wouldn't be addressed in the context of a no deal Brexit is the situation of UK citizens living in EU 27 countries Mm -hmm. and EU 27 citizens currently living in the UK. So this contingency action plan encourages the EU to 27 to protect citizens' rights, provided that the UK reciprocates. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously a really important point for those people. And it's an embarrassment that the UK government hasn't taken this issue more seriously, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, They also have some uh, provisions in the Contingency Action Plan to avoid disruption of air traffic for 12 months. Uh, Temporary provisions with respect to UK participation in the EU emissions trading system. Equivalence an equivalence decision about central clearing of derivatives for a 12-month period. So there are a number of sort of technical steps uh, that the EU uh, is planning to address in order to deal with these. But one of the major issues that the UK is facing at the moment relates to food. Britain imports about half the fresh food that it eats. There isn't enough food warehousing space to deal with uh, implications of a no-deal Brexit for food supplies. There are also issues about access to medicines. UK, the UK imports nearly all of the insulin that's used in the UK. Mm-hmm. So as it becomes more difficult for uh, goods to move across borders, um, what, what happens is that uh, border controls are likely to be uh, reinstituted once there is no uh, common customs area. of the UK's goods trade passes through Dover at the moment. This is up to 10,000 trucks a day. And this is part of the modern just-in-time, just-in-time systems that businesses use. Customs delays would clog everything up. They would limit goods coming into and leaving the UK. So the crossing between Calais and Dover involves a lot of roll-on, roll-off ferries. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very quick. The sh- crossing is really short. It works because there are no border customs checks. And the UK government has been working to open up another, other routes, uh, realizing that there are going to be problems here. This in itself involved an embarrassment. They contracted with a company called Seaborne Freight to reopen the ferry route from Ramsgate to Ostend in Belgium. Seaborne owns no ships. It doesn't have a history of operating a ferry service and it has no trading history. And so this perhaps doesn't seem like the best way of dealing with the problem. Mm -hmm. This week, farming leaders and landowners wrote to MPs talking about the dangers of disrupted food supplies, higher food prices and farmers being put out of business because the EU market could be closed to British food exporters for six months. Brexit, an odial Brexit could affect every aspect of British life. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, it affects its financial services. Um, financial services firms have already been shifting operations to other member states. A report by EY this week, a consulting firm, said that assets worth nearly £800 billion are being moved from the UK in anticipation of Brexit. I was just um, reading David Lammy, who was one of the people who was talking in 
the parliament today. He's a Labour MP for Tottenham. And he gave a big speech in December. And today he was giving this speech which talked about the idea that Labour, you know, the socialist movement is supposed to be an international movement. And the idea that Labour should have any doubts about going forward with the EU as a source of social and political rights, workers' rights, is just stunning. Mm -hmm. And he says that Brexit is a sort of um, neorealist project. Mm -hmm. It's about you know, more austerity, sort of more harm to workers, mm-hmm. to regular people. And he's absolutely right. You know, if you think about Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, this rich guy who, you know, moved his own hedge fund activities off to Dublin, you know, those people aren't affected by any of this stuff. They can be wherever they want. Right. It's just regular people who are stuck with the one percent are their a country into their yeah their own everywhere right. There are stories about entrepreneurs relocating. Shinzo Abe has been in the UK today, and he has been saying that a no deal Brexit would be a complete disaster. Mm. Most people realise that uh, from an economic perspective, it would be seriously disadvantageous to mm. the UK. So it it does seem that over the last day or two, one or two. Tory MPs who planned to oppose the withdrawal agreement have shifted their position. But I don't know if any of the sort of shifts we might expect that would be necessary to produce approval are going to happen. It's very difficult to anticipate. Things are changing, you know, from day to day and from hour to hour at the Mm -hmm. moment. Well, we'll have to get you back on the show very soon to uh, hold on to your hats here. Anything in closing? So the thing that really perplexes me about the world that we're living in is that these politicians who are making decisions in the UK are people who have grown up in a world where international institutions and European institutions were built in order to avoid the serious problems that happened in the middle of the 20th century. We live in a world where we've been able to take for granted to some extent that we don't have to worry too much about wars affecting Europe because of those institutions. And I think that it's the, that that sort of comfort has allowed them to feel that you can just throw these institutions away without having to worry about security threats. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. We know that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really the really worrying thing. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. On next week's show, Celeste Higgins, Associate Director of Miami Law's Litigation Skills Program and former supervisory attorney at the offices of the Federal Public Defender for the Southern District of Florida, will unpack the sweetheart deal given to billionaire and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi. Our theme music is composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. Today's show was brought to you by the Heckerling Institute on Estate Planning, the largest and most respected continuing education for estate planners now in its 53rd year.